What's up, Military Millionaires? I'm your host, David Bray, and I'm here with my co-host, Alexander Felice. And our guest today is Neil Walgren, who was a Air Force and Navy C-130 pilot who has logged over 2,500 flight hours, Iraq, Afghanistan, and a whole bunch of other stuff, as well as uh, having been to the Air Force Academy. And he now works with MAG Capital Partners, and he is uh, essentially has raised over $200 million for projects, and he was a capital raiser and then ended up jumping into one of the companies that they used to help raise money for. And so this is just going to be a lot of fun because I know raising money is kind of a scary topic for a lot of people. And uh, it was a lot harder for me when I first got into it than I thought it would be. And I don't know that uh, I heard people talk about it and I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, it'll be fine. And it was not as easy as I thought. So uh, I think this will be a good conversation for me, a good conversation for you, and a good conversation for everyone else. So, Neil, welcome to the show, brother. Cool. Thanks so much for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you give a little of your uh, background for how you got into real estate? Welcome to the Military Millionaire Podcast, where we teach service members, veterans, and their families how to build wealth through personal finance, entrepreneurship, and real estate investing. I'm your host, David Perret, and together with my co-host, Alex Felice, we're here to be your no BS guides along the most important mission you'll ever embark on, your finances. Vehicle one, you're clear to depart friendly lines. Roger, Vic one, Oscar Mike. Like you said, uh, you know, I had a little stint in the Air Force, then the Navy Reserves, flying Hercs. Same plane, both services, just better looking uniforms on the Navy side. But, <laughs> um, but uh, that and the fact that all the Navy bases are right on the coast. So that's it. my, that's it right my choices were either stay in Abilene, Texas or Little Rock or, uh, you know, go out and ended up flying outside of Malibu right on the coast of SoCal there. So, um, but yeah, ultimately did that for a while and, you know, really enjoyed it. But someone had, had introduced me early on to Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, I know a lot of either yourselves or your listeners have probably heard it before, uh, read it, uh, highly recommend it if you haven't. Um, and really it just kind of, to me, it sparked something that said, Hey, you know, if I, if I continue on the pilot track, which most of my you know peers and colleagues who I used to fly with did, you know, most of them went on to, you know, fly for Delta or United or one of the commercial carriers, you're still ultimately tied to your time and you're paid hourly. And there's really no great way to kind of scale that in terms of a profession if you want to make your your money start to work for you in a way that you are not required to be there day in and day out for it. So that was kind of my, you know, my catalytic moment, I guess you could say. And, you know, I started looking at some different options, um, worked a, a little bit for a startup down in SoCal. And that was fun. It was it was the first time I'd really, especially from, you know, in contrast with the the whole, you know, military life and structure to go, hey, um, you know, I was, I was head of business development for this carbon byproduct. Uh, you know, the company didn't even know if they could sell it, if they'd have to pay to dump it. I mean, really it was, it was kind of the wild west and they're like, here's some money, hire a team, you know, find some, some potential, uh, trial customers, see if you can sell it, see what you can sell it for. And ultimately I did this for about three or four years and, and really enjoyed it, you know, and kind of the, you know, the entrepreneurial side of it. And, you know, just the, the, a bit of the uncertainty that went with it, but potentially huge rewards if, if you ended up landing, you know, a good contract or, you know, a good sales pipeline there. So, hmm. you know, I think, yeah, that, that was the, the initial, you know, trigger coming out of the air force to, you know, more of the entrepreneurial track that ultimately went to real estate. First taste of meritocracy. 
Yeah, <laughs> absolutely there. Yeah. And once, once you get a taste, it's hard to turn around, you know? So, um, yeah, because it, it, once you, um, the safety net feels good when you have it. And then when you sure. get rid of it, you're like, you know what, it's not as good as you think. And living this other way, um, you know, it's like people go, but it's so you're worried about your paycheck. It's so stressful. I'm like, bro, W2 people got stressed too. Yep. You know, 100%. might as well be on your terms. And like you said, unlimited upside. Unlimited, but, yeah. But 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 you didn't you only did it for a few years. What did the company is it still around? Did they sell? No, they, they ended up running out of funding. So it was yeah. um, you know, they it it had a, a biofuels renewable energy front side and then this um, basically form of carbon that I was working with as a byproduct. And ultimately the the front end element turned out not to be as cost efficient as they had hoped. And ultimately the technology wasn't sustainable, but cool field, you know, got to learn a lot about different, you know, renewable energy tracks and pathways. And, you know, I firmly believe at some point in the future, we'll, we'll start to see more of a commercial adoption of it. So you got the, so you got the bug for capitalism and then um, how'd you transition from there to real estate? So I moved up to the Bay and just, you know, kind of by happenstance, you know, had a, a personal family friend who had started a really a, an equity focused company, you know, they capital raised for other operators or developers, and was able to, you know, take that on. Um, the owner had some some family issues early on. And so I was able to really kind of take a very high level of responsibility somewhat quickly. And, you know, really got to work with a bunch of different operators of different types for commercial real estate. You know, we had, you know, multifamily guys, we had multi-tenant retail, some, you know, land development, entitlement, and it was neat, you know, so really got to see, you know, down to the, you know, numbers. I've always been a numbers guy since the Academy. I was operations research major. So liked having the, the fundamentals and understanding that, and then being able to build kind of a business case and ultimately a sales case for how our network of investors, you know, we could pitch this deal, really outline, hey, this is why we think this is good. And ultimately, you know, bring in typically 100% of the equity on each one of these projects. I find it fascinating that you would go from a, uh, an ultimately failed startup, you know, a flyer, call it sure. high risk, high reward. And then you go to real estate, especially commercial real estate, which I find to be one of the lowest risk endeavors that a person that, that you can possibly invest in. Not to say there's no risk. That's not what I'm saying. But sure. in terms of I mean, those are kind of opposites in my the way I the way I, that I analyze them. They're kind of opposites in terms of um, risk. So was that uh, is there anything to that or? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, it's all very it's relative, right? Uh, you know, ultimately compared to, you know, the bond market you know, real, real estate's the wild west, right? But compared to, you know, crypto and stocks, you know, it looks much more stabilized. You know, for me, especially, you know, kind of from the, the operational background in the military, I mean, you, you guys know, you guys were in, when, when you know, every day you, you go out, you take risks, right? But you're identifying them, or at least as many as you can. You're kind of encapsulating the, the risk and how you might you know, react to those. And then ultimately what's left is, is a fairly narrow margin of the unknown that might actually come in. And I think, you know, that, that was sort of what attracted me to the real estate side was that, you know, that there are a lot of ways that this can tank, you know, and mostly it's things that are not in your business plan. It's usually things like COVID, things like, 
you know, unknown, you know, tax assessor coming and tripling your, your tax load every year, you know, it could be, you know, a hailstorm that, you know, even the deductible on your insurance policy just, you know, craters your cash flow projections. I mean, there's just a number of things that are hard to plan for. And the, the more you're able to kind of wrap your head around those and sort of, you know, compartmentalize what you do know, uh, to me, that was, you know, kind of the, the draw toward the real estate risk side. Uh, so my background is in bank underwriting. So I, okay. I hundred percent, that's what I did. <laughs> yep. What's everything that could possibly go wrong. And then some, <laughs> <laughs> yep. And how much bad. Uh, and I'd love to, it. I have to argue with you about the bond market. The only reason why the bond market you say is low risk is because it's backed by the U S government. If you go to another country without a, such a stable currency, the bond market ain't that safe. The place that goes real estate then. That's true. That's <laughs> very true. <laughs> yeah, that's why, the bonds are... <laughs> that's why the Chinese buy real estate in America. It's very, very true. Oh, funny, I'm living in one of those houses right now. All I know is that the guy who owns this house owns 20 or 30 houses cash. And my properties manager's name, is, she said he's foreign. Her name is Sarah, but Sarah is spelled X-I-A-O-H-A-N-G. So, uh, you know, Sarah. <laughs> Hundred <laughs> yeah. percent. Well, buying yeah, buying that house and buying that house here in U.S. dollars is better than owning an RMB. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, so, so I live in San Francisco, and I mean, literally within eye shot, I can probably see you know five, six, seven top floor penthouse apartments, condos that have never been occupied in years, and they, you know, a lot of them are just you know cash buy overseas buyers who come put the money here because it's, it's safe. And they, they don't even want to deal with the hassle of a tenant such that it just makes sense to just hold an empty building. It'll appreciate, you know, they're, they're happy just having something that they know won't crater. And I mean, it's, it's wild when you know how much they could be making, just leasing it out in the, you know, the highest rent in the country here, but they, they choose not to. Yeah. I'm, some I'm people's well problem isn't, some people's problem is they have too much cash. If you can believe it. <laughs> and that is, a, they're like, I got to stick this all somewhere. Yeah, it's the same logic that goes into like, oh crap, I got to buy a 6,000 pound car to write it off like new car, you know, whatever. Yep. Like, do you really like, was that really the best place to park that? Well, it, better than paying it in taxes. All right. Okay, fine. Put it somewhere, right? <laughs> or a nice lease. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, oh man, what an interesting place to be. All right. So you move into the equity world of raising capital. Uh, and before we kind of go into where you're now more on the operation side, I'm curious, I have some friends who've been dabbling or some syndicator buddies who are trying to get into the world of potentially raising from a family office or from a fund. And I'm curious, what would like what makes a attractive operator from the funds perspective, right? Like, obviously you've got to have a track record, but I, I guess I'm just curious, like at what, le like what level of, of deal it, I mean, I'm sure it varies, but if you could give some perspective from the fund side, like what you're looking for in a guy who's running multifamily apartments. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just a quick caveat. So when, when we raise money internally at Mad Capital, we're doing project by project. So we, we basically create a special purpose LLC raise money, that LLC buys one property or or a known portfolio tenanted by a single tenant. And then um, you know, basically stays all together until we sell. So we don't we don't pool funds in a in a true classic fund um, structure cool. there. But um, but no to, to answer your question, you know, how how do you 
how do you effectively escalate to the point where you can start approaching high net worth individuals, family offices, you know, really larger check writers into your deals? You know, it, for a long time early on, I remember, I, I think I, I approached some of these groups too early. I was, I was ambitious and I just said, let's go. And my, my feedback kind of varied from these guys. It was never a yes, right? <laughs> it was always, hey, you know, you're you haven't been doing this a long time, you know, come see us when, when you're further along. And, it, and I didn't really understand what that meant. And now fast forward about five, six years, I have several, several, um, you know, clients that are, you know, represent uh, small family offices, some uh, interesting enough, uh, quite a few Indian groups actually with, um, you know, both native American and um, you know, some, some of the casino, effectively the casino business managers take some of that revenue and invest it on behalf of the tribes, which is, you know, more or less a family office if you think about it. But ultimately, you know, not only do they look for, you know, track record, um, but they're also looking for scale. You know, they want to see you to be a size commensurate that their stakeholders expect. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you only have say $30 million under management and they're looking to place, I don't know, you know, five, $6 million equity checks, that, that particular investment would make up a huge um, percentage of your AUM as an operator. And so if that deal went south, they have to be able to say, Hey, they can look at their stakeholders and go, you know, I, I took a, took a big risk on this deal and, you know, maybe they wouldn't look so great. Maybe they'd have an egg on their face. So a lot of them will will want you to have not only a track record, but have you done deals at the size of what you're raising for, for a substantial amount of time. So they're looking for AUM and they're also looking for kind of maturity in marketing. Uh, and I, I wish it wasn't the case because not everyone likes to do marketing. You know, you're like, hey, I'm just, a, I'm a deal hunter, right? You know, I just, I just want the, the art of the deal. I, I can put together the numbers and just kick ass at this, but I mean, to be honest, if you don't have the outside presence, if you don't have the website, if you don't have the, you know, the company deck, those things are, you know, more or less kind of check the box due diligence that these guys are looking for. And if you don't have them, they're probably just going to go past because, hey, now there's a a perceived level of risk with your operation that they're not comfortable with. This is, um, this is really, really insightful, actually. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that you said that because uh, I've raised, I've done two capital raises now for increasingly larger deals by your standards. They're incredibly small deals. One was a million, one was 3.2 million. I raised 280 and then 1.4 million. Um, and I, so my question to you, I guess, is I wanted to discuss momentum. So again, for like people who are new and they go, well, how come I can't go get this big money? And now I've, I've run into big money now. And people are like, yeah, I have deals for you, but you have, they've told me the same thing as you. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not giving you money in your first. And now I did my second and they were like, yeah, I don't want to do money in this. I didn't want to do it in a second. And I'm starting <laughs> to get the feeling I, I didn't, I wasn't able to articulate it, but the way you articulate it is actually really good. It's like, if you want to go take a million, you better not have a portfolio of 2 million because now they make up yep. 50% of your fund. Exactly. So without giving out a number, let's just say, you know, 5%. It's like, you have to kind of, there's an uphill momentum battle in this business, you know, the first time you close that $30 million building, it's like the next 30 million will be easier. And, and then each time it's like, once you have, yeah, once you have a, a, a hundred million in assets, raising 2 million should be, is going to just be far easier because um, you are on the other side of the scale. Uh, absolutely. And, and another way you can kind of 
I would say accelerate that process is set yourself up for success when it comes to scarcity. And again, this is part of the psychology to it. But if you have deals that are filling up immediately and people want to get in who can't, it's hard. And right. It sucks. You know, you're calling up your investors and go, ah, I, I really wanted to get you in this. I couldn't. I put you on a wait list. You know, I'll give you an early look on the next one here. I, it's it's an uncomfortable conversation to have, but as a as a firm, as an operation, it adds just this inherent amount of credibility and substantiation of, I mean, really it's FOMO, right? I mean, guys, they want to get in. If they can't, now suddenly, hey, am I missing out on something? You know, now, hey, this is not an opportunity that I can graze on and look at and pick pick out a little bit, you know, decide down the road if I get in. Now, suddenly you, you've created scarcity. And you can do that artificially, right? I mean, you can create, you know, maybe maybe you think you can raise $2 million on a deal, but, you know, every once in a while, just choose a small one. Make it great, you know, set up your underwriting that's really investor favored and just make it so you know it's going to sell out immediately. And then send out another email 12 hours later and go, we're full. And I swear to you, I swear to God, for the next five raises in a row, you will have people clamoring over themselves because they're like, I missed out on the last one. And it's this self-perpetuating machine that you've created. It's fantastic. I love it. I love I that. I like that advice. Yeah. yeah I mean, good. oh man. I mean, FOMO is so real, but scarcities. that So obviously scarcity is great in sales tactics. They always tell you, you know, this deal closes at this time. There's only so many. There's, you know, uh, timer on the, whenever you're doing like funnels or stuff, like timer on the funnel, like all this stuff. I've never heard anyone describe it with big capital raises like this. And I never even thought about the fact that you could very easily, because I mean, a lot of times people send out that email and they just say, Hey, you know, thanks. Uh, you know, thanks to the investors, you know, whatever. Um, but just intentionally sending out an email. that's like, Hey, look, we're fully subscribed. I'm sorry for the like 15 of you that wanted to get in and couldn't, you know, we'll have another opportunity, whatever. And then you use that as, I guess effectively ammo on the next one. Like, hey, just make sure you're quick because yeah. you filled up in 12 hours last time. That's cool. On, on my last deal offering I sent out just a couple of weeks ago, you know, I, I was able to honestly put, hey, our our last deal filled up in less than 24. We we filled four million in less than 24 hours, and that was in the the offering that went out. And this this new one we filled four and a half million in about 75 minutes. I mean, it was. <laughs> It was wild. I mean, literally, I it just I couldn't even like read through the emails at the rate they were coming in. You know, with commitments coming in, and boom, boom, boom. And uh, what a, I mean, just a great when you get um. Let me ask you. It's a good problem I, I'm to still have. Learning, I'm still learning my the system from the back end. Um, sure. You take uh, the last time. Okay, let me let me let me parcel this out. Let's parcel out the thing. So you got uh. Is the fund already set up or do you set it up for, you said you set up for the deals. So, so each, each you, one's set up. So we, we'll have the operating account already created. The legal entities are already done. I mean, everything's under contract. The debt, you know, we usually have term sheets on the debt. Uh, you know, it's not final yet, but it's near final. And then ultimately, you know, I, I, I'm to a point now where I can delay an equity raise till, you know, 10 days before I, I need a hard close because I know I can get, you know, commitments and money in the door very quickly. So well, I don't have, the, I have the opposite problem, right? I need a long <laughs> Sure. No, I, 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 and it wasn't always this way. Trust me. But. Yeah, yeah. So I need a, I need a lot of time. So what I made, what, some of the mistakes I made in this last one was we closed, we got the deal in a contract and it, 
it felt like it took me a long time before we got the legal entity set up. So I was in a weird limbo where I was like, I really don't want to be asking people for money because God forbid they say yes. And I'm like, I can't take it from you right now. So yeah. how, how do I solve that problem? I, so that there's a, there's, there's different stage stages, right? You have, you know, effectively gates between a initial offering and money in the bank. And this is from somewhat systematic and somewhat psychological of what an investor goes through. So they, they're going to first be exposed to your opportunity and they're going to process it. And then ultimately they're going to go, Hmm, this looks interesting, right? And what you want to do is, is as quickly as possible, get them from that point to a verbal commit. Um, and so, you know, the way we do it, we say, Hey, give me, give me a verbal commit early. I, and, and I, I use scarcity and I say, look, these deals fill up quick, right? And they do. Uh, and I say, hey, if you give me a verbal commit early, at least that allows me to set those funds aside to make sure we don't oversell them. And, you know, I'm like, at the end of the day, if you look it through, change your mind, not a big deal. You know, we always have a wait list. Just let me know, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, no harm, no foul there. But that way, if you want in, you can get in, right? So now I've effectively incentivized an early verbal commitment, right? And then once that happens, you really, before you even solicit that verbal commit, you want to have forms ready, doc, you know, basically your PPMs, your subscription agreements, your legal docs, you know, the operating agreements that they're signing. You want all of those pieces either done or, you know, ready to be finished within a, a few days because you, you have this kind of withering window of excitement, you know, of commitment, of really a, of just internal commitment toward this decision, right? And it's super high when they tell you, and it's just slowly going to erode away. And the, the faster you can get them forms, and the easier, the, the less friction you can, or the, the more friction you remove from the process. Now they're going to go and sign those forms, but they haven't funded yet, right? But what I found is you lose a lot more investors between verbal commitments and signed forms than you do between signed forms and actual funding. And, and technically that, that form is a legal, um, you know, really a legal commitment to fund. Uh, let's be honest, you know, someone signs and says, ah, I changed my mind or, you know, life happened. It's not like you're going to hold them to it and say, you, you have to put money in this deal. But, you know, from a, you know, from a intentional standpoint, you know, that is the goal to get them signed quick. And then honestly, you probably want to wait to receive funds until very close to when you close, because otherwise you run the risk of, you know, acting like you're not a good steward of your investor's cash. If it's just sitting there in an operating account, not working because you haven't closed on the deal yet. What's up, military millionaires? I have not done a good enough job talking about syndication opportunities. So for those of you who don't know, I have been investing in some apartment complexes over the years, as long as as well as a bunch of other stuff. But I just have never really mentioned it on the podcast, so I apologize for making that hard to find. Look, if you are an accredited or sophisticated investor or unsure and would just like to talk, go ahead and go over to the investor from militarymillionaire.com slash investor slash and just fill out the little form. Let's jump on a call and talk. I'd love to hear how we can help each other out. So some of the opportunities that we provide can be anything from really big cash flow advance, uh, opportunities to big equity plays. We do. I, I even do some private lending type stuff, but lots of different opportunities out there to invest. And I just want to make sure that you guys understand those are out there. So if you're interested in syndications or private money, you know, I'd love to jump on a call with you. There are ways that we can help you out. You can help me out. We can help everybody out. Win, 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 win situation. 
Our most recent deal was 146 units, uh, 7% preferred return and uh, projected 18% plus return on investment. But we've done better. We've done not quite as good with more equity play, like lots of different opportunities, right? And if you want to be there's a separate email list that I have, which I send those deals to. And if you want to be on that list, then let's schedule a call and jump on it because we need to know each other. If I'm going to be sending you information on these opportunities, and I would hate for you to miss out on it just because of my ugly mug not telling you. So if that sounds interesting, let me know. If that does not sound interesting, enjoy the show right now. Yeah. So, okay, that helps. Uh, I think what I need to do next time is um, as soon as I get the thing on the contract, I need to be I mean, as soon as you get in a contract, you should have legal and, and the bank account set up immediately. Yep. Immediately. So we had a long delay in our last one and, um, you know, I'm learning that's something I went through, but I did have that problem. And so I was curious. Yeah. I mean, so what you said and what I did is right. I just bad at it still. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the more you do it, I, I build a checklist and I, I mark it out each time, you know, I'm like, how do I improve this? You know, I'm very methodical about it. And, and I mean, really it's just from, the communication piece to investors from introducing them to a deal to having money in the bank and closing. And that, that process is super repeatable no matter what deal you're doing. Uh, okay. Let me switch gears a little bit here. Um, we are in experiencing a time of perhaps unprecedented liquidity. Uh, what I realized uh, in this last basically deal was um, if I poke around, I don't really have an, I don't really have an access to money problem. I have an access to good deals problem. Is that, um, how does that work for a guy like you who raises a lot of money? Uh, do you find, well, you're getting oversubscribed on deals. Uh, are you running into a deal scarcity problem? We are, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say deal scarcity, but we, we've you know established a certain profile of what our return structure should look like, what our deal structure should look like. And it's really tempting to keep chasing deals the same way you did six months ago. But you, if you do so, you're, you're gonna overpay for them, right? And, you know, that's great if trends continue, but what happens when they don't, you know, then you don't want to be sitting on, you know, a piece of property that you bought at a high basis instead of what should have been, you know, 20 or 30% lower, you know, and ultimately that's the question, right? Do I chase deals for the sake of chasing deals or do I genuinely feel like we have a good basis on this opportunity to whether, you know, whatever recessionary craziness is going to happen in the next few years, and, you know, have a, a decent chance of at least preserving capital, you know, four or five years down the road. Uh, you, you said earlier that you were raising, you were doing 100% equities. I wasn't sure if that was common or if that was one deal. Uh, are, are you guys using debt? We, we are. Yeah, I, I should have specified that a little better. So uh, I, I raise all the equity for the deals that we put together in Mag Capital. You know, all that's through our organic investor group. The, most of our deals, their capital stack is structured roughly about 70% leverage on most of our industrial projects that we do. I mean, I, okay. really debt is so cheap right now. I, I cannot- That's why I was like- Fathom you, any you, way you that all, you shouldn't be doing that, so. Yeah, um, and then so I just did my first with the Fannie Mae okay. uh, non-recourse 10-year and it's assumable. Do you- do, is this something you guys use where it makes it kind of lucrative, right? I look at it like, well, if rates stay where they're at, then um, valuations, should, cap rates should continue to compress a little bit and valuations should go up. Um, and if the inflation keeps going, then rent prices hopefully will go up. Now, if rent price, if, if cap rates decompress because um, rates go up, 
then my assumable loan starts to really have a lot of value at three and a half percent. Do you think that this Fannie Mae debt situation that I, I, the way I look at it right now is it's kind of like, it's kind of a really good equalizer, not to overpay for deals, but it's kind of, uh, it does create a lot of, um, it becomes very forgiving. And absolutely. And if you were faced with a decision of, you know, the, the lowest rate, but it's non-assumable versus, you know, a slightly higher one that is 10 times out of 10, I would choose, I would choose the latter. I mean, just ha- having, having options. So you're not pinned against a wall in a unknown set of circumstances, four or five years down the road is worth dividends in my point. And, and really, I mean, you can sell that to your investor group and go, Hey, this is part of our, really our contingency plan, you know, analysis here to go, I don't know what the future is going to look like. I, you know, really when we set up our deals, we, we can control a lot of variables because the leases are full triple net leases, single tenant, right? So I know with a high degree of certainty, what cash flow down to the penny will look like even three, four years down the road. You know, anything that, that comes up, I've effectively removed that risk of expense by structuring my lease so the tenant's responsible for everything. But at the end of the day, when it, when it comes time to sell, I don't know exactly what the, the world's going to look like. And I don't pretend to, right? And so, but I, what I do tell people is, hey, I've signed a 20-year lease. We're planning on holding this thing for five. I got 15 years left on this, right? It's, it's fairly attractive with 10 or more years. So that gives me an additional five years of buffer. And then in addition, debt, we'll usually would try to get 10-year term on the debt. So that means, hey, you know what? If I don't sell at five, if, if, the, if the world sucks, if industrial's in the tanks, you know, I can at least afford to sit on here comfortably another two, three, four years without, you know, worrying about forced into a refi or forced, forced to sell because of some outside factor because I've built in flexibility on that side. That's awesome. So, yeah, my strategy right now, sorry, David, I know you want to get in here. Um, my strategy right now, uh, I think that the value, I think the money right now is in debt. I think the debt is like the one of the rates are cheap. And, and if you can get government backed debts for either single family um, for our listeners, a lot of our listeners are just still do, are doing single family properties like that 30 year fixed rate mortgage is like the dream. And then mm-hmm. if you go big, I think the Fannie Mae debt is good. I think the five year balloons from commercial mortgages are the scariest um, thing around <laughs> right now. Uh, a five year with a call. I think that's a risky place to be um, right now, but the, the government backed loans, that's, that's good business. That's good money. Yeah. And, and I would say as operator sponsors, you know, it's tempt, it's tempting to follow investor inclinations of chasing returns, right? You know, they're always like, Hey, I want that extra, extra percentage point on the projections. You know, I'll, I'll put money in a 16 IRR projection deal over a 15 one, you know, more and more, especially after I've been in this space, you know, really it's, it's our responsibility as operators and sponsors to kind of train and condition our investor groups to say, Hey, we're not always going to chase the highest return projections because having options down the road, especially in today's world where, you know, it's very good right now, but it could be very not good, you know, five years, five years down that, you know, Hey, we'll, we'll take a, you know, 200 basis point haircut on projections in favor of having options down the road. And that, I mean, that's a, that's a sleep easy decision right there that, that helps you sleep well and, you know, not fret over that investment for, you know, years to come. Yeah. I think that um, I went through this twice now where it's like, uh, I am a habitual under um, 
promise over deliver. And that's very difficult in this market because everybody's like, you know, IRR porn. Yep. Right? And, it's, and, it's just, and I'm like, I, I, I don't want to lie to you. And the messed up thing is if, if um, you know, Federal Reserve chairman announced that rates are going to stay low to 2024. I mean, the chances that this thing gets even better is high. And so next thing I know, it's like, dude, I could be losing by losing investors because I'm not being making my projections. Um outlandish enough and then god forbid the i actually hit them because the market continues so it's a very weird time because i am of the opinion it's like look let me under promise and over deliver but then but then i'm losing buyers because they're like well that guy over there is hitting a 20 percent irr and i'm like well he's projecting Maybe. that the cap rates are going to decrease another point and a half yep. <laughs> yeah so it's a sorry yeah it's a weird time no, I, I, I think you're, you're doing, stay the course on it. And trust me, like long as, as you build your track record, hitting or exceeding projections and, and, you know, having the numbers to show when you start exiting deals, that, that is when it all comes full circle. And, and, you know, you can chase projections early on, but you're making it very hard to hit those marks. I mean, we, you know, we as a company have really, I mean, like very much done the same thing. And we've been fortunate. I mean, really, 100% of our exits, we, we've exited 13 deals. Every single one has hit or exceeded our, our projected IRRs. I mean, that's that's a great story to tell. And if, yep. if you build yourself some buffer in there, where you're able to even... So, uh, here's a little bit of advice, um, especially early on. You know, I think operators are highly... Um, it, it is very beneficial to your overall like future business growth to set up a few easy win short-term investments such that you feel comfortable. You can exit in 18 months, 24 months. You know, you don't need to make a lot of money, but just hit, hit your marks, right? And if, if you can deliver, say, a, a, if you promise a 15% IRR and you can deliver a 16% and you held it for 12 months, it doesn't matter. Now you have a, you're substantiating that track record. You're showing, hey, I projected this, I delivered better. And getting two, three of those under your belt will substantially help you raise even for longer term projects beyond that. That's awesome. And you learn what you're doing. That's you the do. biggest thing for me. <laughs> this, is, this is the part that none of, that we haven't really talked about. Um, and again, I don't know how deep into the deals, into the asset management you get, if at all, or see the deals. I know you work in ops and capital. Um, I do a little bit of both capital and I go, you know, I, I'm, on, I'm on boots on the ground a little bit. And, you know, having that, just the experience, like, you know, I'm under, I'm doing low, I'm doing conservative projections. Um, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to beat them. Right. But I built myself in a little bit of like, Hey, the world might fall apart. Don't, don't over, don't get, but more than anything, it's like, I'm learning how to do this for a career's worth of future, not just, you know, Oh, here's a deal or two. It's mm -hmm. like, no, no, the next, I'm going to get better at this. Um, and then the, one of the things I have been thinking about, like, like you mentioned is, I want to keep those, like, what's my track record for hitting projections? Not just, can you make money, but can you make the money you say? Cause yep. you know, at the end of the day, you don't want to be the guy who's like, I told you I was going to hit 15, you know, well, we only hit 12. It's like, yeah, but 12 is pretty good. It's like, that's yeah. not the point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you so, know, I, I talked to a real kind of seasoned investor in my group and um, this guy, he's, He's just, I mean, he's probably got 50 LP positions across different syndicators. Uh, he's a big fan of our group. Just, and really, I value that feedback more from him because he has the, the comparative, you know, uh, alternatives 
to look at, you know, how other sponsors have delivered, how they've communicated, really all those pieces. And he comes to us and he, he really kind of reinforces what we're doing right, which I love. Uh, but he's funny. He's like, you know, honestly, he's like, he's like, I don't even look at projections anymore. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. He's like, nobody knows what the fuck's going to happen in five years. Right. <laughs> honestly. And, and he's like, they are, you know, they're, they're spinning gold out of their ass. I mean, that was literally his, his quote. And um, I was like, huh. And he's like, you know, honestly, what I care about is protect capital. He's like, you know what, at the end of the day, if you can return my capital, I count it as a win. And I'm like, interesting. Yeah. He's like anything beyond that's gravy. You know, I appreciate it. And, and he's like, you know, most, most operators will, but he's like, if they communicate well and protect my capital, do not lose capital. He's like the rest of the returns, you know, I'm, I'm happy anywhere in there. And he's like, you know, that, that, the, the year to year cash flow. I, he's like, I value that so much higher than any, you know, projected profit piece upon sale five years from now. Cause he's like, there's just so much uncertainty on that piece. And really what's funny is that back end, you know, profit split piece is so influential on where your projected IRR lands that, you know, the more seasoned guys really just stop caring about it. Cause they know, you know, nobody knows. We are in the highest period of volatility that I've, I certainly that I've lived through and I read a lot of history, a lot of economic history. And it's like kind of, kind of some of the highest, some of the highest part of uh, the future is more unknown than, than many times in the past. So uh, when I was doing, we we were doing our projections, you know, I have a history in underwriting, like I said, so, um, but even the banks are, you know, it's like the, 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 the bank bar will come to the bank and say, here's my projections. And then the bank will make projections and then n- neither are right. <laughs> you know, it's, true, yeah. it's like, oh, we both were wrong, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But, uh, so when I sold this last deal, it was, it was, Hey, look, uh, number one is preservation of capital. Mm-hmm. Number one is preservation of capital. So I'm definitely not going to lose your money. I might even make some. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, like, and, and the more, you know, the more I've been in this game, that, that is a premise of a sales pitch that I would be interested in, you know, like, tell me more, you know, <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell me how you're not going to lose my money and you might make me some money. Like yeah. it's, it's better than what a bank account does. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think there's, um, do you, David, uh, I'm totally hijacking your podcast right now. I, know. I, I was, uh, I know this is the <laughs> Alexander Felice show. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, do you, do you, Let's talk about different uh, investor segments. So there's definitely the newer, let's call it new money uh, investors who are chasing returns, and maybe they they um, we've been an economic you know monster for the last 12 years. So a lot of people have money to toss around. Liquidity is really high. I mean, it sucks to be in cash right now. So everybody's trying to get that money working, and so they're yep. chasing what we said IRR porn. But then there's definitely a uh, I, I'm using the term old money, but I think it just means people who are say older that have a nest egg. And they're like, look, I don't care about f- fancy returns. What I care about is what you said, uh, preservation of capital. And like, hey, look, you know, S&P habitually earns 8%. If you can make me eight and a half, I'm a happy camper. Mm-hmm. So do you, um, are those, are, are those uh, noticeable demographics for you? Or is it more complicated than that? You know, I, I would say on the spectrum of, you know, private placement, commercial real estate investments, you know, largely office, industrial, you know, throw in some, I don't know, self-storage, multifamily, et cetera. I would say industrial, especially single tenant net leased industrial is probably on the lower end of the risk spectrum. And, and initially I, I expected to have 
you know, largely an older demographic that was, you know, really didn't necessarily chase that big value add bump that you might potentially get on riskier deals, but, you know, instead really just valued that, you know, kind of tax, tax mitigated high cash flow from day one, you know, no expenses and, and really valued that consistency. But really, you know, what I've found is it's not the case. And, you know, we have young people, we have old people. I would say that there really is no demographic um, push toward an older, you know, quote unquote, less, less or, or more risk averse segment there. You know, ultimately, I think a lot of folks, even younger, are saying having consistent cash flow to maybe augment some of the riskier bets we're making kind of helps my whole portfolio feel good. And, and, Honestly, I mean, during COVID, I, I think a lot of guys saw, you know, saw deals that maybe didn't crater, but certainly took a, a huge step back or three steps back, 10 steps back in terms of where they hoped it would be and, and what it's actually delivering. And so having having some of these kind of sleep easy, steady investments that they, you know, they keep paying whether COVID happens or not. I mean, these these tenants are big credit tenants, most of them are, you know, do 70, $80 million a year in sales. They, they have good cash reserves. They pay the rent on time and, you know, we distribute out and that. So having a little element of that, I was surprised to see how attractive that was or appealing that was to younger people in a very similar way to older people. Yeah. When things are going really well and everybody's winning, I want my 16 or 20% RR. When shit hits the fan, I want my 8%. Please give me my 8%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and we've been fortunate, you know, on these, because we're not dealing with credit tenants. So, you know, if you're, if you're putting in tenants like, like Walgreens, like, you know, Home Depot, McDonald's, even you, you have a very low risk tenant, but your returns are going to, you know, cash flow, you might be looking at about 4%. IRRs might be, you know, eight, nine, 10, maybe 11%. But when you deal with um, what are called sub-investment grade tenants, where they don't have an outside Moody's or S&P giving you a credit score, now you, you play in kind of more of, of the equivalent of a class B multifamily, right? Where there's there's a, a bit more, um, you know, I would say perceived risk at least. And that that's really where we play in. And that space, I mean, we've been able to deliver high teens, maybe not high teens, but, you know, 16, 17% IRRs fairly consistently full cycle on the deals we've exited. And that's because it, in my opinion, these, these are growth oriented companies and especially a lot of them will, will do sale leasebacks effectively sell us the real estate shortly after they've been acquired by private equity groups. And so now, you know, the PE groups like to pull the, the equity out of the real estate and reinvest it into their operational companies. And when that happens, if they're successful, a lot of times they grow these, these tenant companies, you know, sometimes two, three X the size over the, the time frame that we own the real estate. And now when we go to sell, we have a much stronger tenant in place than when we bought it. And that, that you can actually see some pretty decent cap compression because you've, you've lowered the risk of the investment because now it's just simply a stronger tenant. Anything else, Alex? <laughs> we, we can un uh, unpack I'd that like to, all day long. But <laughs> I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, David Perret. Oh. <laughs> <He's, laughs> he, oh. he has a microphone, too. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, unfortunately, we're coming close to, uh, to time on this. I was going to ask. I wanted to kind of dig into the industrial uh, master leases and net leases, but uh, we may just have to have you back on the show a second time, and we can get more into 
the logistics of actually what you guys are operating in because that's also an asset class that we haven't and a, and, a, and a style of investing that we haven't had a chance to discuss on the show before and i find very interesting that a lot of people don't tap into right like the apartments are sexy right now mobile homes are sexy uh house flipping and hgtv before and after photos <laughs> on instagram with your champagne is sexy um industrial is is not what people think of when they think of the sexy real estate but obviously there's a lot to it and i think it's really cool so yeah i definitely want to get you back and and talk and dig through that a little bit as well but holy smokes i learned a lot i mean if you notice i just sitting back like staring at the ceiling trying to like <laughs> keep up on some of this like this was really really insightful as far as especially like the uh, like the different gates in uh, raising money right where you can get the ver the verbal commitment to like get somebody pot committed even before you have the ability to take funds like that's huge i mean i did the same thing on the first time i ever raised money i Shoot, I did it recently. I wait. I was waiting to figure out exactly my play with the deal before I raised the 50k to close this little tiny private loan house when I could have had them. And so I ended up like raising it in the last three days of the deal instead of just being like, <laughs> "Oh, hey, hey, dude, you want to give me 50 grand for this house? Cool. I'll let you know if I need it for sure." Um, it's a lot of a lot of really good insight, Neil. Uh, Barry Barry didn't let us down, so uh, <laughs> cool. No, I really enjoyed the talk here. Yeah, I'd I'd love to come on. Uh, Another episode if you guys want to unpack the industrial space a little more too. Oh, Alex is taking a photo. <laughs> Wave. Um, all right. So before we go, where can people get a hold of you if they would like to follow up with you, ask questions, or get on, even just get on your investor list? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some general info is our website, www.magcp.com. That's M A G C P.com. Or um, you can just shoot me a note direct. I mean, literally, I do this full time. Love to take, you know, questions, comments, you know, hear what you thought of the show here. Uh, or if you're interested in getting on, on our investor list, um, you can reach out. It's Neil, N-E-I-L, like Neil Diamond, uh, at magcp.com. Can I just say how much I appreciate your domain name? There are people <laughs> who come on this podcast, I'm like, where can you get a hold of me? Them, And it's like alphabet soup dot gen z slash <laughs> x backspace dash dash dot com and you're like oh cool great yeah i'm listening to this while i'm driving down the road i got that so yeah magcp.com is simple and easy and i think that's honestly a really smart marketing move myself included my domain name is too long and i've uh, owned that for a very long time so yeah. uh well done. Short so, and sweet, right? <laughs> that's it, man. Neil, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've gotten a ton out of this and we'll definitely have to have you back on the show to talk industrial uh, net leases and all that good stuff as well. Cool. Looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from militarytomillionaire.com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show. Give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.